everybody. You're listening to the Becoming Maternal podcast, the show where we have candid conversations about the stuff you're afraid to ask your friends and which health class would have taught you about the path to and into parenthood when you were young. We are a practice of maternal and reproductive mental health therapists, moms, and women who just frankly aren't afraid to talk about the hard stuff. Now let's talk about the journey to becoming maternal. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Becoming Maternal. I am excited that you're here. The host for today, I am Kathy Quillett. I am the owner and licensed marriage and family therapist of Tennessee Reproductive Therapy and Arkansas Reproductive Therapy. And I'm just really glad that you've joined us for another episode. Now, trigger warning for today, like I promise to do every time, is today we're talking about infertility. And that is really hard for people. And so if this feels like maybe it's going to elicit some unwanted emotion, or you feel like I can't do this yet, or maybe it's not my story, um, or I'm not ready for it to be my story yet, um, then go ahead and pause this and we'll be back next week with a whole different topic. But if you are going to join us today, um, still then just welcome. I'm so glad you're here. We're entering into sacred spaces of inconvenient life circumstances or typically what we would refer to in the mental health realm of this is awfully traumatic and life crises. So if this is you just receive a warm embrace for me virtually through the podcast world right now. And so as we proceed, just know that we talk about this with the utmost respect for your journey and hope that you can maybe take a nugget or a pearl of wisdom. And uh, if you need my guest and I, after this, we will tell you at the end how to reach out and work with us. So I have the privilege of having Dr. Colleen Miller with me today on the podcast. She is a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist here in middle Tennessee. She is the newest member of Tennessee uh, Fertility Institute here in the Nashville, the greater Nashville area. And it is a privilege for us to have you here, Dr. Miller. So thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and, and to be talking with you. This, I think this is such a great idea uh, for a podcast. So really yeah. happy. Thank you so much. Yeah. So that is, you know, your job title and your degree. Tell us who maybe you are as a physician, but maybe who you are outside of the doctor's office or laboratory. Yeah, perfect. Um, Well, I grew up in Cincinnati um, and I went to the Ohio State University for undergrad. Oh, wait. I know. know, (laughs) Uh, It seems like there's a fair amount of us Buckeyes down here in Tennessee, which is pretty fun. Yeah. but stayed at Ohio State for um, undergrad and med school. In med school, I met my husband, who actually is also from uh, the Cincinnati area. Um, and then we both kind of did long distance for our training mm-hmm. and are, are back here finally living together. We got married um, last October, so we're coming yes. up on our first anniversary. Um, and so we moved here with our two cats, uh, Peyton and Eli, their little brothers, black and white kitties that um, we rescued um, from their pregnant that. mom. And um, yeah, we're just here, just us, and uh, we're really loving it, really loving the food scene in Nashville. That's kind of my favorite thing to do is go find new restaurants and yes. um, scout out all the hidden uh, locations that um, are still up and coming. So we're really enjoying it here. Yeah. Well, thanks for, I mean, you are an asset to this community. I moved to Nashville um, about seven and a half years ago and just to see how 
the the landscape of fertility and infertility treatment has changed so much. And every time we get a really great provider like yourself, it feels like oh, just a breath of fresh air that people don't have to do this journey quite as alone. My story was infertility and we did it 13 years ago. And I committed my career to changing that landscape and the narrative around um, the emotional intelligence around it, just spreading the news. Because when I did it, we were, you know, creeping away from my space still. So <laughs> things are really different. So I love that you are in uh, Tennessee with us. So today, everybody, we are just going into kind of a 40,000 foot view of why you would need a reproductive endocrinologist, what to expect from the clinic, and just kind of giving you an overview of um, what to expect kind of when you're not expecting. And so what Dr. Miller, what I'd love for you to do is just kind of give us a, an overview of what situations might take, like kind of talk to us about what is infertility? What are the statistics around that? Um, and why would somebody decide or need to come to a reproductive endocrinologist or an REI? Absolutely. Yes. I think that's kind of the most important question is kind of when to begin this journey. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there. And I think a lot of providers too tell patients to kind of wait and it can be really frustrating. Why am I being told to just wait if we're clearly not being successful? So technically the definition of infertility is trying regularly to conceive for a year under the age of 35 for the female partner um, or for six months over the age of 35 for the female partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to, you know, take a little sidetrack here, the reason why we care so much about the, you know, the female partner age is that men get to make brand new sperm cells every three months. And that starts at puberty um, and continues pretty much throughout their whole life. Whereas women were actually born with all the egg cells we're ever going to have. That highest number of egg cells we have is when we're only 20 weeks old as a fetus. We have six to 7 million. We lose 80% of those eggs by the time we hit puberty, which makes no sense, but here no we are, science. <laughs> and then we have about a good 200 to 300,000 egg cells at puberty. But what happens is that we actually have a growth of many egg cells every month. One gets to ovulate and the rest just die off. So mm-hmm. every month, what, you know, whether we're on birth control, whether we're pregnant, whether we're doing IVF, whether we're trying to conceive, we're constantly having this growth and loss of these egg cells. So by the time we get to age 35, that's when that loss becomes more significant. So we may be looking at lower counts of egg cells that we're left with and also lower quality because those chromosomes and those Mm -hmm. egg cells have been with us since 20 weeks, you know? Um, So that's why we focus so much on the female age. Um, Now, infertility is becoming much more common, unfortunately. and, And we don't know whether this is because more people are talking about it. More people are seeking out care for this. We're recognizing it as an actual disease, which it absolutely is. Um, Or there are things in our environment um, that are making us more likely to become infertile. But now the statistic is one in five of us in the U.S. will develop infertility. So you mentioned a different statistic about the the global number. Can you share that? Because it blew my mind. 
Yeah, we think globally it may be as high as one in four um, couples will suffer from infertility kind of worldwide. So this is a really big problem, you know, and um, it's important. And and I think it's really important to know when to see us. And just to also clarify, um, I am a board certified OBGYN, but I also Mm -hmm. did three years of specialty training in reproductive endocrinology and infertility specifically. So that's what I focused on was infertility at Mayo Clinic for three years. So -hmm. there are some OBGYNs that are generalists that feel comfortable with infertility and will um, treat it or, or start treatment. But I'm, you know, where you come to when we've kind of exhausted the options or when you just kind yeah. of want to see someone who focuses solely on this. Yeah. Um, so again, when you, fe- you know, you, when you fit those criteria for the infertility um, diagnoses, that's when absolutely we would say come in. Um, above the age of 40, it gets even higher um, as far as rates of infertility and harder to get pregnant, less than 5% chance kind of every month. So then we'd say, just kind of see us, just come in. Let's at least talk. It doesn't mean we have to do treatments or even any testing, but let's at least talk about how to optimize your chances every month. Yeah. And then I think the biggest thing for me um, to, for, to have people remember is that if something is not going optimally, if you're not having regular cycles, if you have severe pain with periods, if your partner um, you know, has issues with erectile dysfunction or ejaculation issues, please, please, please do not wait a year, right? Because clearly something is going wrong. Yeah. Things aren't optimal. So see us sooner. There's no reason to wait if you're concerned that that things may not be working optimally. And And I love that permission slip that you just gave people because I hear like, I am only having maybe five or six periods a year, but it hasn't been an entire year that I've been trying. Mm-hmm. Well, what you're saying is you're not working optimally. Right. So come in, don't right. put your th- yourself through the torture of trying to meet that. I, you know, when we get into this world, there's that white coat phenomenon that says like, I don't meet all this criteria. What if they tell me to go home, this misunderstanding and misrepresentation, or disrespect maybe of women's health generally. And so people feel like I can't go in, right? But you're mm-hmm. saying, come in. Yes, because please. <laughs> please come in. Please take care of yourself. Yes. And advocate for yourself. Yes. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's what it takes too, to, to advocate your, for yourself because some providers will say, just give it more time. You're young. You know, I'm, you have very good chances, but if things aren't perfectly timed and working optimally, please just come in. The worst thing we can do is find out everything's normal, right? And, and you still have excellent chances and you can go on your way. Um, Mm -hmm. But I just don't want people to be trying for years when we could have intervened sooner. Yeah. Now, what about secondary infertility? That is something where people don't understand. I feel like they don't often fit kind of culturally or socially in the infertility or don't think that they fit there. But what if somebody's already had a live birth and now they're experiencing secondary infertility? When should they come in? Absolutely. So that that is a really hard um, diagnosis, right, to get yeah. because you've done this before, we have a child, you know, what's going wrong this time, but the same, you know, definitions fit. So if you, even if you've had a child before, um, maybe now you're 36, if it's been six months, come in and see us, you know, we can uh, look into if there's anything going wrong or anything to optimize. Sometimes 
we say, you know, everything looks good and keep trying for another six months or a year. You know, it doesn't always have to be treatment. Um, but unfortunately, you know, we see this a lot. And when you when you meet those definitions, I, I still say definitely come in. Oh. Now you're saying come in. And I think a question is, where do we go? Right. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, he, there are lots of places in the country where people have to travel really far to go to a reproductive endocrinologist. We have the yeah. luxury here in Nashville of having a couple mm-hmm. that is great. But a question I get as a, a therapist who, you know, treats a lot of your patients, mm-hmm. where do I go? How to find, how do I find out who's good for me? And so People might say like, I just did a cursory Google search and here are the ones in the area. I want to find the doctor who's right for me, the clinic who's right for me. But then we do a deeper Google search or a deeper search into, I don't know, dare I say social media. And then everybody has an opinion. People are traveling everywhere. How do we find a clinic? How do we find a doctor? Yeah, it it can be really hard. I think one way uh, to start is to ask your OBGYN because generally they yep. have a good pulse on where their patients have gone, where they've had good experiences and where they haven't. Um, yeah. and, and they may be more um, able to, to kind of give you a referral to a place that they think that you would fit because they know you a little bit better. Um, sometimes we don't have the luxury of having an OBGYN that, you know, is connected or maybe we just moved to Tennessee. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. then you kind of are at the, the mercy of, of Google searches and things like that. Um, but I think infertility is very common. And I think a lot of women don't talk about it, but yeah. there are um, probably more people than you think that have gone through it. So asking yeah. friends and family, um, resolve.org is yes. our national infertility um, body. And they have a lot of resources on their website. So you can find um, local clinics that way. Um, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine is yes. our REI um, physician group that has a lot of information for patients on their website. Um, so you can find clinics that way. And then um, SART, S-A-R-T, is the Society yes. for Assisted Reproductive Technology. They also have um, clinic information and even statistics about success rates and things like that. Um, But sometimes, honestly, it takes just setting up that appointment and seeing if it's a good fit, right? And understanding how they connect with their patients. Do they use a portal? Do they use phone calls? You know, did you get along with your doctor? Did it not seem like a good fit? You know, sometimes it does take a little bit of, unfortunately, you know, setting up a couple different appointments to find someone, but you want to find someone that you trust for sure. So it's a hard process. Absolutely. And you're really inviting somebody into one of the most sacred spaces of your relationship and something that most of us are taught when we're younger, not to talk about. Um, And that's the idea of sex and intimacy. And so you're bringing somebody essentially not really into your, into your bedroom, but into those parts of reproduction that are really personal. And so you want somebody that you feel safe advocating for yourself with, that you feel safe telling all of your symptoms to that you feel really heard. Um, and it's not just the provider, but it's also the nurses. Do you feel valued when you are on the phone, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Now I want to revisit just for a minute. 
a lot of people need mental health treatment. You and I agree on this as they go through infertility. And you mentioned two websites that I want to circle back to, and that's Resolve and the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. Not only can you find medical providers there, but you can also find therapists. And so if you're in a place that's outside of Tennessee, where we are, or Arkansas, where we are, and you're like, hey, I need somebody, but I don't know where to start. The ASRM website and the Resolve website are places that we as mental health providers can register with to be um, a provider. So we are with Tennessee and Arkansas Reproductive Therapy. Um, but if you're looking like Texas somewhere else, go to those websites so you can find a clinician who's not trained because nobody wants to train their therapist about the condition that they're experiencing. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So just wanted to circle back to that in case you're like, okay, I hear all this. I'm struggling. That's where I find a, a medical provider, but where do I find a therapist? Absolutely. So this episode of the Becoming Maternal podcast is sponsored by Navigating Infertility. Navigating Infertility is a six-session online course with corresponding workbook curated by Dr. Amelia Bailey and Kathy Quillett. This course is the integration of the medical and mental health fields working to educate, support, and empower individuals and couples pursuing parenthood. To begin your journey through navigating infertility, visit our website at navigatinginfertility.com. Use code PODCAST15 for 15% off your purchase. Now back to the show. You said you're an OBGYN who's also a reproductive endocrinologist, but there's also PAs, phys physician's assistant, NPs, without... I, I think they're all different levels of um, doctors, nurses, medical staff are important. Who are we recommending that we really seek treatment with? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I think that honestly, you want someone who did the fellowship training in yes. reproductive endocrinology and infertility because it's three years for, you know, a reason. We really take a deep dive into the physiology of reproduction and, and it's complicated. I think anyone who tells you 100% this is the diagnosis and this is the way it is, um, I wouldn't trust them, whether it's mm -hmm. an REI or an OBGYN, because there's so much about this field that we don't know. But I would definitely say if you see an NP or a PA, they're great, honestly. They, um, I've worked with some of the best uh, mid-level providers in the field, um, and they are such a great resource, but I would also want them to be connected with a group, um, you know, that works with board certified REIs as well. Um, and I'd be a little bit wary about just board certified OBGYNs um, without that specialty training. Uh, perfect. Agreed. Okay. So before I, I come in, I'm, I'm a patient and I'm getting ready to, I've made my appointment. I'm getting ready to go in. What should I send over? What do you as a provider need before my first appointment? Absolutely. So the best thing that you can do is send us any records of any testing or treatment that you've done up until then. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, if you have nothing, that's fine too. I love kind of starting at the beginning and, yep. and digging into everything uh, in the past myself, of course. But if you have any records, if you have any testing you've already done, it allows us to really narrow down our focus for your consult to what's most important, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have to go through things that we've already ruled out as a cause of your infertility. Um, it really makes me, you know, not have to repeat things. And I think it also in many times lets me review it as the specialist. And sometimes I find something that 
someone may have disregarded. So yeah, overall the semen analysis looked fine. Well, actually the morphology was low. Uh, you know, the, the shape of the sperm was not perfect. And I do have some concerns about that. So it just does allow me as a specialist to, to give you my full opinion of your case. And it allows us to, to dive deeper sooner into the treatment options and to getting you the help and getting you to your mm -hmm. goals, you know, sooner. Yeah. Right. I think that's great. So we're thinking thyroid, ovarian reserve, ultrasound, semen analysis, any information from previous pregnancies, if you are experiencing yeah. secondary infertility. Absolutely. Any uterine surgeries, um, particularly, you know, some people have had pregnancies and then they have to have a DNC for the retained placenta. That's a huge, um, you know, history marker for me to tell me that we need to look at the uterus a little closer. Um, so anything exactly right. Any GYN history is very important. We talk about periods a lot, you know, we call it mm -hmm. kind of the fifth vital sign, um, because it really tells us so much about patients. Um, but menstrual history, OB history, and then any tubal testing, blood work, as you mentioned, those are all very important for us to have. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I have heard some REIs talk about in the past, especially in the paperwork or just up front. I, I'm really aware that some people are super triggered from past trauma coming into mm -hmm. your office, whether it be a birth trauma or dare I say, uh, past history of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. or trauma from a physician or something. Tell us how like that can be communicated to you and how I, how, how is that a value to you? And I'm assuming you're going to say like, tell us, but what I want listeners to hear is if that's me and I'm putting this off because I don't really want a speculum or something, how, Oh, what do we do with that as somebody who's experienced abuse before? Absolutely. You know, I think it can be really uh, frustrating and overwhelming to fill out all of your health history <laughs> before you've yeah. even met the physician and to, and to give all of this very honest and very personal information on a sheet of paper uh, to someone yeah. that you haven't even seen in person yet. Um, but if there is anything like that, like that history it's so important to tell us upfront, especially if you don't really want to talk to us about it, right? Like I have this history. I don't want to use speculums. Let's just meet each other first before I tell you why. Like, don't ask any more questions about it at this point, but just yeah. so you know, FYI. Um, but it's just, it's it's really important for us to know to, to treat you um, better because we have a lot of patients that have abuse history or just like you said, a very traumatic delivery or pregnancy. And um, a lot of times we refer our patients to pelvic floor physical therapy, to you, to, to mental yeah. health um, resources, because all of that is still the patient's health. It's all important, right? right so we right. have to look at every aspect of that. Yeah. I just, I love that, that you think that way because, you know, there's so much life that has happened before we get to this point. And we're not just um, helping you make a baby. I always say that after infertility is pregnancy, postpartum and parenthood and your success in infertility, especially emotionally, we don't want to cause more trauma to existing trauma. We want to help an overall wellness of each 
woman of each couple so that they are ready for pregnancy. So they're ready for that first year of postpartum and so that they can step into parenthood. I divide those up. I know they're the same thing, but I think they're so fundamentally different to the female experience. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just, we don't want anybody to be re-traumatized by going through this. So thanks for, that was a rogue question of mine, but I love it. No, it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I've sent you everything going, um, into the portal and you know, everything about me, including any past history tests, et cetera. What do I expect during my first visit with a reproductive endocrinologist? I mean, a lot of times women know like how to go to the OB or OBGYN. (laughs) And like, we've been doing that since we're 18 or sexually active. At least that was what it was for when I was growing up. But what do we expect during the first visit? Um, with an REI? Absolutely. Well, I always like to start my visits just, you know, asking what are your goals for today? Um, You know, what are you hoping to get out of this visit? Because sometimes it's just a second opinion. Sometimes it's, we're ready to go right to IVF. Mm. Sometimes it's, I have, you know, something going wrong with my cycles and no one is listening to me. And I just need you to tell me that this Mm -hmm. is normal or that everything's fine. So I think it's always important if you can, to have an idea of what you're hoping to get out of this first visit in your mind. After that, generally, we start with a review of the history. So anything that sticks out to me that I want to get a little more information about or that, you know, may be concerning with with the fertility aspect, um, we just kind of review those aspects that are most important, make sure that I have all the facts. Mm. The second part, which I think is so important, is really education. And so your provider should really spend at least half the time, uh, explaining to you about fertility, because I think you mentioned earlier, you know, in health class, most of us aren't told what our menstrual cycles are and and how we actually get periods and how to actually get pregnant. Usually it's just, you know, don't get pregnant or don't have sex or you'll get chlamydia and die, you know? Totally. Especially if you sit on a toilet seat after a boy, I was told growing up, you get sex on your period. And then people, people would be like, I didn't know that I was fertile. I'm like, of course you were, you were bleeding. You were on your period. No, I didn't think that for forever. Okay. Or for a super long time, but there's so much misinformation and generalizations that people know trigonometry or geometry, but they don't know empathy and menstrual cycle. Absolutely. That's a whole different soapbox of mine. I know we could do a whole episode just about like the (laughs) menstrual cycle, but honestly, it is surprising even knowing that, you know, women are born with all the eggs that they're going to have. I find a lot of male partners are kind of shocked by that, right? And um, so there just is so much education that I think needs to happen right. to understand more about your body and also to understand why are we doing the tests that we're doing? What are we looking at? Why are each of these things important? Um, so education is such a, you know, a big, big uh, important part of the visit. And mm-hmm. then usually the third part is just kind of a discussion and a summary. So looking at your case, this is most likely what I think is going on. Or, you know, I I don't know 100%. I think we need to get some more information. So here are the additional steps I think that we should do to see if we can identify anything going wrong. And then if we find something, here would be kind of a basic overview of what options we'd have for treatment if we decide we want to pursue that depending on what your goals are, right? Right. For your family building. Um, And then of course, there should always be a time at the end for questions. And that should be your time to advocate for yourself, to to get that, you know, goal that you had in mind that they didn't actually ever get to, 
to get that, you know, goal yeah. completed and those questions answered. Yeah. So what about history? What are, what type of history are you digging into? Like, how is this all pertinent? What do you want to know? So, like I said, that menstrual cycle is so important to us. It tells us so much, um, you know, how old were you when you started having periods? Are they regular? And I do an asterisk around regular because that's also a misconception, right? Regular doesn't mean it happens on the 28th day of every month. Regular mm. doesn't mean um, that it happens every 28 days. Regular for you can be every 21 days. It can be even up to every 35 days. But what I mean is it comes about the same length every time. So mm. it may be 30 days, it may be 29, it may be 31, but it's generally all about you know, all around the same time. And it's predictable. Um, whereas, no, it's not regular. I'm skipping two months at a time. I can't ever tell when it's coming. Yeah. Um, other things that are important, you know, how heavy your bleeding is, how long does it last? Do you have pain with periods? I think there's a lot of misconception there that, oh, you have pain, that's normal. Just take ibuprofen. Severe pain with periods and pain with intercourse is not normal. So please, you should please, not please have to skip work. That. Correct. You should not be having to stay home from work or school or taking antiemetics to keep from vomiting because your cramps are so bad. That's oh not gosh. normal. Um, so, so those are the big things I think. And then, you know, anything else as far as fertility, you know, have you tried those LH surge kits to detect your ovulation? Are you tracking with the Anito app or, you know, what types of birth control have you used in the past for how long? Not that that causes infertility. Yeah. Being on birth control, but it just helps us kind of know if you've been on birth control from 16 to 30. Now, when you're seeing me, we don't really know what your periods are like. Right. So yeah, we have to investigate that further. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to go rogue a minute here too. I feel like if you look deep into social media, hashtag trying to conceive something like that. You are going to find people in stirrups with socks with spurns on them, eating pineapples after procedures, getting McDonald's fries and lots of people selling co coaching packages. I, that's a whole, Oh, I get on the soapbox about that too. Trying to get people to be healthy. Now yeah. the American society of reproductive medicine that we talked about early or says the elective thing that you can and should be doing is acupuncture. Mm -hmm. But I know there's a lot of other things that people should be doing. Is there anything that you think outside of, you know, the treatment medically from an REI that people should be doing? I mean, obviously pineapple socks, embryo shirts, pineapple cores. I'm sure there's other things like standing on your left foot at mm -hmm. the lunar eclipse pointing east. I don't know. Yes. But what do you recommend to boost fertility? It's a really excellent question. And I see your point. I think that there's a lot of companies and people that are willing to sort of take advantage of women going through fertility treatments because it's such a motivated patient population. Like if you tell me to stand on my head and sing happy birthday for three minutes every day at noon, like <laughs> I will do it. Like I promise you, if this will work, We're I will desperate. do it. Yeah. So absolutely. And I totally understand. And I think it's very easy to be, um, you know, convinced that, that spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on this certain prenatal is going to get you pregnant, you know, any more than another one. So I think, you know, always talking to your providers is, is most important about what there is and isn't evidence for, right? From my perspective, um, 
you know, the, the biggest things are being healthy, like you said. So Mediterranean diet seems to be the best um, diet for um, fertility. And, and I hate the word diet because that means really restricting and things like that. That's mm-hmm. not what I mean. I mean, focusing on very healthy fats. So avocados, nuts, salmon, yeah. you know, lots of healthy, um, dark green leafy vegetables, um, exercises safe, you know, really avoiding smoking and tobacco, limiting alcohol to a drink a day. Especially um, for the men also. Especially for the men. A male absolutely. partner. Yes. Oh yes. Yes. I say it it, you know, it's two parts that, that need to be working to come together to get a pregnancy. So that absolutely includes the male partner as well. Right. Um, we're learning a lot too about uh, chemicals and like yeah. plastics with the BPA chemical that can be hormone blockers. So really trying to avoid um, reusable um, or plastic, you know, water bottles and trying to use the the metal and the glass containers for foods and drinks and things like that. Um, and then I think, you know, just using apps to kind of track your cycles. Yep. That's, the, that's the best way to do it. But there's not going to be one prenatal that that fixes it all. Right. Uh, I wish there was. If I had the magic pill, I promise I would be giving it out. So let's say we they've had their first appointment with you. Where do we go from there? Like, obviously you have a lot of information to gather, even if they come in and are like, Hey, hi, I had a semen analysis three years ago, or, you know, we tried at this clinic two years ago in a different state. Mm-hmm. Where do you start with testing? I know that this is not a one size fits all mm-hmm. um, type of intervention for somebody. So somebody coming in with no sperm, it's different than somebody who maybe has PCOS, but kind of where do you start with testing? Yeah. So I say, you know, going back to fertility 101, all right, yeah. you need four things to be working to get pregnant. So you need sperm, a working uterus, working fallopian tubes and ovaries. So that's kind of where I start my basic evaluation. So with the semen analysis, it tells us a lot. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of testing on the female side. For the men's side, semen analysis gives us a lot of information. Number of sperm, number of moving sperm, number of sperm that look normal that should be able to fertilize an egg. That's kind of it for them. Yeah. Um, On the female side, we like to at least start with a vaginal ultrasound. And a lot of times people have come in with, completing ultrasounds elsewhere, but I really like to do it myself because there's things like adenomyosis and um, endometriosis and fibroids and other things that I'm looking for that other people may not be looking as closely for. So I really like to repeat that myself. I want you just real quick, adenomyosis, endometriosis. I had both. I didn't know what adeno was before I was diagnosed. We just know endo really Mm -hmm. quickly. What's the difference? Absolutely. So they're kind of cousins is what I say. So in the inside lining of the uterus, there are cells called the endometrium. These are those cells that fill up with blood every month to support the pregnancy. And then when you're not pregnant, bleed off. So in adenomyosis, those endometrial cells invade into the muscle layer of the uterus. So they go deeper into the muscle where they're not supposed to be. 
And unfortunately, they do what they're supposed to do, which is fill up with blood and bleed every month. But that means you're having blood inside a muscle, which is really, really painful. So it can lead to painful periods, heavier periods and infertility uh, because it really changes the anatomy of the, the uterus and kind of leads to this inflammatory environment. Um, endometriosis is where those cells don't invade into the uterus, but they go other places in the pelvis where they're not supposed to be. So they can stick to the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, the pelvic cavity, the bowel, the appendix. I mean, we've even seen it on the diaphragm and the lungs and the brain. I mean, we have no idea why these cells go places they're not supposed to be, but again, not supposed to have blood in your pelvis. So it causes scarring, it can scar the fallopian tubes, can cause cysts in the ovaries. And then again, this idea of this inflammation there where your body's trying to heal itself and clean up all this old blood and these cells that aren't supposed to be there. But that means you have all of these inflammatory cell signals and cytokines and white blood cells that are all around and can really affect chances of fertility. So for the person that just heard, there's documented cases of endometriosis being on the brain. Last I knew there was like four documented cases of endometriosis on the brain, super rare. I don't want anybody to go out and be like, oh my gosh, I have migraines, yeah. endometriosis <laughs> in the brain. So we're from physician saying it like, this is incredibly rare that we're finding stuff like that, but yeah. the documented cases are very low. Okay. Yeah. So if you think I was diagnosed with endometriosis, it's pretty bad. Maybe we should check my lungs. No, those are very rare that they've, they've gone there, but it's fascinating as, you know, a scientist, I'm sure to see those somewhere else. Absolutely. Yeah. We're still trying to figure out why endometriosis happens. You know, if it's the cells themselves that change, if it's um, retrograde menstruation, so those blood cells, instead of coming out through the cervix and the vagina, going backwards through the fallopian tube, if it spread through the lymphatic system. I mean, we, mm. we don't really know. And everyone's case seems to be a little bit different. I mean, you can't get endometriosis in your lungs from retrograde menstruation, right? That right. anatomically doesn't really make sense, but, but we see it in these very, very rare cases elsewhere. So there's so much we don't know, but um, endometriosis could be a whole podcast episode again in itself, but it's important sure. to someone who's a specialist in that area. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is a hard thing to diagnose. Yeah. Um, but get it. If you're experiencing pelvic pain, I know some people who are fighting with it way too long. Fortunately, in my case, that was the first place my doctor chose to look. So I was like, Hey, I'm experiencing infertility and I am having really painful periods. And she's like, let's cut you open. Because again, 13 years ago, that's what we did. And she was Mm -hmm. like, Oh my gosh, it's everywhere. So I had answers right away. But if you suspect something, work hard to find an answer so that you're not yeah. living in pain. It's painful. Absolutely. So Absolutely. painful. Okay. So we're doctor. Looking... Yeah. It's impressive. Yeah. That's usually yeah. not the story that they, that they suspect. At oh, first, so oh my crazy. gosh. She's was amazing. So we're looking uterus, fallopian tubes, ovaries. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the uterine ultrasound. So the next yeah. thing would be fallopian tubes. There are a few ways to look at this, but essentially what we're doing is we're trying to see that the fallopian tubes look normal and are open. So they're not big and dilated tubes that are damaged. Um, They're small pencil thin lines um, and then they're open spilling the dye. 
So the most common way I would say people look at this is with what's called an HFG, hysterosalpingogram. This involves putting a catheter into the uterus, pushing dye out through the tubes and taking an x-ray. We're also trying to develop other ways like at uh, Mayo Clinic where I was training, we were using a foam to push through the catheter at the same time as doing an ultrasound. So it's supposed to be a little less painful, no radiation exposure, things like that. Um, or other people do kind of a bubble study with saline called the FEMBU. So any of these options work really well uh, just to make sure that the tubes are normal. Um, and then the last thing is ovaries. And this is kind of the most important thing for women, sort of as we talked mm -hmm. about in the beginning of the podcast with our egg count and quality. But you really want three tests of ovarian reserve looked at. One is the antral follicle count. So looking at the number of follicles, fluid-filled sacs with an egg cell in it on ultrasound. Two is AMH, anti-mullerian hormone, blood work, looking at a hormone secreted by those follicles in the ovary. And then third is follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, plus estradiol. Then mm -hmm. they need to get both because it's a communication. This is looking at FSH that comes from the pituitary gland in the brain versus the estrogen that comes from the ovary and how they're talking to each other. So a lot of times I see people with just one or the other, but we really need both. And again, we need all three together because they tell a story together, looking at them all at once, as opposed to just getting one. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, female age, again, seems to be the biggest, most important part of this. And the other thing is, um, not only do we need to have a good egg count and quality, but we also have to be ovulating those eggs at the right time to get pregnant. So ovulation yep. and regular periods are the other big important thing with ovaries. Okay. <laughs> I uh, just want to hit maybe one or two more things here um, because I feel like we could talk about this for three hours. Um, talk to me about a genetic carrier screening and how we're looking to make sure that sperm and egg are compatible. Absolutely. So uh, genetic carrier screening is really important. Um, it's looking for any genetic conditions that are kind of silent and hidden in our DNA, but that could be passed on to a baby as an actual disease. So if you've heard of cystic fibrosis, a disease yeah. that affects the lung and the pancreas, it's a really devastating disease in, in children. Um, if the female partner carries a, a mutation for cystic fibrosis, but the male partner does not, well, that's fine. The child will never have two copies of a mutation, so they won't be sick. But if the mother and the father or the egg source and the sperm source both carry that mutation, there's a 25% chance that the child could get both mutations and be physically sick with the disease. Mm -hmm. And so this is not always seen in families, right? Someone could just have this carrier condition passed on, but never have children with someone who's also a carrier. So it's not something that you would necessarily know you have or that runs in your family until you did this kind of testing, but it can really help us prevent um, couples from having a, you know, a lethal or very morbid childhood condition mm -hmm. after everything that they've gone through to get mm -hmm. pregnant. Like, please just help me get you a healthy child at the end of yeah. this. Yeah. Um, so I do think it's really important. Um, one of the things people ask, though, is, is what do you do? Okay, so we're both cystic fibrosis carriers. I mean, you can't change our DNA. That's true. But I think on one hand, we could do IVF and biopsy those embryos to only get you pregnant with embryos that are a carrier like you are or completely unaffected. Or it's something that you could just know that you have. 
don't do any additional testing or treatment about, but tell your OBGYN and tell the neonatal team and have a heads up that this may be something you're at risk for um, to help you plan and help get a care team set up. I think, you know, I just really think knowledge is power. And in this case, it can only help you. You are amazing. And this is so helpful. As we wrap up, what is maybe one thing that you would tell somebody that's listening? Like, do I need to go to the REI or I I'm struggling with infertility. What's next? Like, what is one thing that you would say, please just would say, please just talk about it. And that could be to a friend. It could be to a parent. It could be to your OBGYN could be to your partner, but I think don't suffer in silence, right? Right. If you're concerned, I'm concerned, tell someone and just see what they think. I think a lot of times getting your feelings out and your concerns makes you realize Mm -hmm. actually this is something that we should take more seriously. And it helps having someone else on your team as well, right? Helping you advocate for yourself. So you're not the only one. Um, And just, just getting it out there helps us help you, right? If I don't know, I can't help. Um, If your family doesn't know, they can't be there for you. So I would say just tell someone you trust, just talk about it. Let's not have a stigma about it. Yeah. Shame lives in silence, doesn't it? Yeah. And so if we can just say something, you bring in somebody to your story and it becomes a lot heavier, becomes a lot less dark, right? And dreary. Um, And we can normalize it. I mean, if we're talking one in four globally, one in five in the States, um, we're talking statistically, somebody is going to say to you, me too. Mm -hmm. Right. But if we live in silence, then nobody has the opportunity to say, girl, I got you. Right. Absolutely. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for coming into this space and sharing all of this. This is, oh, this guidebook for people is so valuable. Now, if people want to work with you um, or find you in social media land, um, where are you? How do people find you? How do people work with you? Yeah, so I'm at the Tennessee Fertility Institute. We have offices both in the Midtown area, kind of downtown, and then also in the Cool Springs, Franklin area. Um, You can set up an appointment by calling us, by getting on our website. We do have an Instagram page that you can look us up. Um, I'm working on setting up my own Instagram page, but still slogging through that. So I don't have a personal page yet, but um, yeah, come see me. At least let's have a conversation and talk about things. I would be more than happy to um, just see you and start having those conversations. So please reach out if I can be helpful. Awesome. Awesome. Go find him on Instagram. I even saw you guys post something on social media with Tennessee Fertility Institute the other day, something about, um, you know, PCOS awareness month, which is September, but also, um, kind of just education, but also financing stuff and really ways to make this, um, just as a practice making this, um, achievable for people, but also you guys celebrate really well when a couple achieves pregnancy and makes it to birth. So I love what you guys are doing over there. I'm so glad you've joined the practice in the Nashville community. Thanks for joining us on becoming maternal also. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We will be back next week with a whole different topic. And so if you are at a different 
you know, phase of becoming maternal, we invite you to check it out. All right. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Becoming Maternal. We hope that you have a really excellent week. Come back and join us for another episode next week. Hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.